Isaiah 36 can be found on page 719 of the Church Bibles. In the, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew, in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you, will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary and Joah son of Asaph the recorder went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Continue with chapter 37 on page 720. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when children come to the point of birth and there is no strength to, to deliver them. 
It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I am going to put a spirit in him, so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with a sword. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish, he withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Now Sennacherib received a report that Teharka, the Cushite king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messages to Hezekiah with this word, Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden, who were in Telazar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, or of Hena, or Iver? Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have heaped insults on the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its pines. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you stay, and when you come and go, and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me, and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year, you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year, what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. 
For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it, for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Shereza cut him down with a sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esau had and his son succeeded him as king. This is the word of the Lord. Because I don't suppose um, you're too genned up on Isaiah and the Assyrian crisis. Well, I remember when I first went to university, that was my first essay. Write an essay on Isaiah and the Assyrian crisis. I thought, heck, I don't even know where the book of Isaiah is, let alone anything about any Assyrians and any crisis. So, you know, I have complete empathy. But just to sort of make historical... The reason why we do look at things like this in vast chunks is mainly because we see how God has made promises that he will have through his people Israel a people out of whom the Lord Jesus will eventually be born. So all these things which happen to them, basically God ensures they exist. And even if it's a remnant, and even if it's just a small part of the land, you know, they will stay in existence, his plans will come to fruition. So if you get lost along the way, just remember that's the important bit. But we also learn things from uh, these kind of historical experiences that people like Hezekiah have, um, um, with the Lord, and we can get insights and benefit from living our Christian life. And also, just to help, you know, connection with a bit of contemporary uh, news. So, we're familiar with ISIL, unfortunately. They do some most atrocious things, awful things, but as you'll see, and they particularly do them against the Assyrian community who live in northeastern Syria and northwestern Iraq. The Assyrians were amongst the first people to become Christians, and some of them speak a form of Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke. But their ancestors, what, 2,800 years ago, were amongst the cruelest people who have ever lived. I'll show you what they got up to later. But they did the same sort of things that ISIL do. And ISIL, as you probably know, this is what they aspire to uh, rule. But this is where they currently, the red area is the territory that ISIL currently kind of have, yellow is what they aspire to. And Mosul, which they recently captured in the last year, is there. And Mosul is the biblical city of Nineveh. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. That's our connection for today. And in Mosul, they have a museum. And you may have read this week that after um, the uh, ISIL people, um, once they start chopping people's heads off, they decided they'd start chopping off the heads of some of these Assyrian artifacts. These are from about 800 BC, and they're just attacking it with, um, you know, some kind of uh, power saw or sander, just destroying this kind of stuff. But fortunately, this is where our Brits come into play. Because about 150 years ago, we went around the world nicking stuff. And we nicked a number of these. You can see them in the British Museum. There you are. Just to flick back so you can see. You see, that's what... Get the thing? It's a kind of... It's basically the, the sort of body of a lion, the wings of an eagle, the head of a man. And uh, here we have it there in the British Museum. And uh, so we're looking at Isaiah and the Assyrian crisis to see what we can learn from this. 
This is the territory that we're, this is the territory that the Assyrians at their greatest extent occupied. They came from Nineveh there, Mosul, and they expanded down into what is today southern Iraq, was then Babylonia, and they expanded right down into Egypt at one particular point, and we'll see a bit more in a minute. Um, now, um, this is what they do when they conquer different places. They make the king kind of bow down and pay tribute. Basically give the, uh, this is I think Shalmaneser III is the Assyrian. And this is Jehu, one of the um, Israelite kings from about the 9th century BC, paying tribute to him. That's how they kind of got kind of wealthy. Now in Nineveh, this is a reconstruction. You get an idea of scale. This is just a reconstruction of one of the entrances to Nineveh. You know, we're talking about a big, powerful, wealthy empire. And as I said, we know a lot about the Assyrian Empire because we nicked a load of their stuff so long ago and we've put it in the British Museum. Here are these things again. And then down this particular corridor, we have lots of what they call reliefs, kind of engravings from the palace in Nineveh where the kings tell the story of all their supposedly great achievements. Again, just to get a scale for what these things are, these are exactly what um, the ISIL are destroying in the last week in Mosul, but we have them in the British Museum. This is this uh, long corridor with all the reliefs on the wall, and this is an artist's impression of what the, the palace at Nineveh might have looked like. Uh, Nineveh is actually on the Tigris, and we've got different parts of it, give you some idea. And this, again, is an artist impression. You know, you need a lot of money to build something of that quality. I mean, that's what they call dressed stone. You know, you've got to kind of carve it out to get it all kind of right. It's not just a load of old rocks stuck together. And so this is the, uh, the heart of their empire. Um, Uratu is in their language what we call Assyria. Nineveh is their capital. And they've been going in the 9th century. They made some kind of expansion in the 800s, but they really got going in the middle sort of 700s under Tiglath-Pileser III. And um, that's what he conquered. And then there was another one, Sargon II. He did a massive amount of expansion. And then our guy today we're looking at, Sennacherib. He actually extended it down here and he conquered places like Lakesh, but he didn't manage to capture Jerusalem. God preserved his remnant. Now, this is Tiglath-Pileser III. This is Shalmaneser V, who didn't really do a great deal. This is Sargon II and Sennacherib. So if you ever get trivial pursuit on Assyrian kings, you'll do rather well. Um, and they were the first people to have a professional army. And they were really, really ruthless. As a child, I remember going to Madame Tussauds, to the Chamber of Horrors, and you could see what the Assyrians did. It stuck in my mind. They would lay people down, and they'd go over them with plows. I mean, how cruel. Um, they, they were archers on horseback. They were archers in chariots. Uh, they had their usual kind of infantry with shields. All this is on this relief in the British Museum. They had people who sort of slung stones. Here are some stones they recovered from Lachish, the place southwest of Jerusalem that they managed to uh, capture. They even had the Daleks on their side. You see that? That's a Dalek, isn't it? It's a Dalek. You see? That's a Dalek? Well, actually, it's a siege machine. So you have to get it to sort of scale. This is all wood. This thing here, they're ramming into the walls. And here you've got arches at the top, the same level as the defenders. But uh, you can see where the writers have got Doctor Who got some inspiration from, can't you? Um, but this is one of the things they did, which was pretty nasty. This is Sennacherib. He's flaying alive the Hebrews that he's caught, and he captured the city of Lachish. None of that kind of soft stuff, you know. Surrender to me, Hezekiah, and I'll take you off to a nice place where there's loads of water and sunshine and all that. This is what he did. He actually flayed the, the, often the soldiers alive. And um, here you are, there's a drawing of it just to kind of see. You know, they flay them alive and cut their head off, you know. Not changed a lot, has it? Two and a half thousand years. They also specialised in sticking kind of rings through the prisoners' noses and pulled them along. 
Do you remember that bit that uh, we had read, Mandy read to us where God says he will carry off the, uh, the Assyrians you know, through string through their noses? And they just stab out people's eyes, deliberately blind them. That's how nasty and cruel the Assyrians were. And here we have, from the relief here on, they're sticking people, basically impaling them on a pole, the people they've captured from uh, the places they've conquered. Here we have uh, the women being carried... No, I can't see which way round it is. Um, well, whichever you can work out the different genders. I think the men are tied up here and the women are carrying stuff on their backs as they're carried off into exile to work in another part of the Assyrian Empire. And of course the king will pay tribute. That's the way in which they kind of grew wealthy. This place, Lachish, which is west of Jerusalem, this was the place that they, um, they besieged and they completely destroyed and did some of those horrible things to people. That's an artist's impression. This is from the relief where you've got a bit of imagination here. here these are the soldiers, these are ladders up against the wall and they're heading to get to the top of the wall. Again, that's an artist's impression. I guess that's from the Middle Ages because the fortifications look rather medieval, but gives you the general idea. They're the Daleks again. Um, and we know all this, not just from Isaiah, not just from the Book of Kings, but also from, one, from these three prisms of Sennacherib. You see, Sennacherib would record what he got up to. And um, we have three prisms, they're called. One is in the British Museum, I think one is in Jerusalem, and one of them is in Chicago. And he tells us a lot of stuff. In the British Museum, which is where this is, um, there's all this cuneiform script, which somebody has managed to decipher. This is what it kind of looks like. And on it, they have, amongst other stuff, they have loads of stuff about uh, Sennacherib's invasion. But he says, as for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. So it's not just, we're not just relying on the Bible to tell us that these things happen. We are fortunate in that, um, for that particular time, we have absolutely loads of stuff from the Assyrians. So... It's about uh, 702 BC and um, uh, Hezekiah's in a dilemma. He's in a crisis. Is he, going, is he prepared to trust God and what God had promised about having a people and out of a people arising a saviour? Um, is he going to be able to trust that when he's got Hundred, couple of hundred thousand Assyrians kind of just about to kind of wipe him out of existence? Well, we'll see. But what he'll learn through this experience is whether God is a weak, remote, ineffectual, effectively non-existent being, or whether he is unbelievably powerful, amazingly active and intimately involved. And so it may be 200 700 BC, it might be a couple of thousand miles away, it may be the life of a king, but he was in a crisis, and the kind of reaction he has to the crisis, and the kind of questions he has to face, are ones which perhaps we do if we face crises. And we have to ask, what can we learn? What we, can we learn from this, in order that we might be able to be better followers of the Lord. So a bit of context, it's 702, Sennacherib is the king and has been since 705 um, BC. Um, um, and often when these kings would ascend to the throne, it means all these kind of little vassal states like bits of Babylon, bits of Egypt, they think, ah, oh, chance to rebel. So they give the new king aggravation. And that's what happened. There's a guy called Merodach Baradan, who's a Babylonian. He did that. So Sennacherib had to go east and had to fight him. He kind of managed to quell him, and that gave him time, but not totally, that gave him time to go and go west to try and sort out the Egyptians who had rebelled. And against Isaiah's advice, Hezekiah had sided with the Egyptians and others, and they'd not paid their kind of money to uh, Sennacherib. And so he was coming to kind of wallop them so that they'd uh, cough up the loot. And um, 
so he moves against him. He comes via the Lebanon. We read in his annals that he uh, crushed 45 cities of, uh, of the, uh, in, in Judah. And um, all that stuff is in, uh, we can read about it in the British Museum. It's an interesting time. God had made this great promise that a divine king would rule the world from Jerusalem, that all nations, Egyptians and Assyrians included, would come and worship the Lord Almighty there. Well, so far they've just been words. Will the God of Isaiah deliver his people so that this king can be born, that he will be one who will grow up to rule the world? Or is it just a load of hot air? Who will turn out to be in charge of things? The Assyrians or the Lord Almighty? So as we open up this uh, chapter, things are not looking too good for Isaiah, Hezekiah, and the people of Judah. There are 200,000 Assyrians. They have blitzkrieg the Levant, and they are now almost to Jerusalem. They have crushed Lachish. They're moving on to Libna. And um, judging by the sarcastic comment of the field commander of the Assyrians, it looks like Hezekiah is defending the place with probably only 2,000 men because he offers him horses for them to kind of you know, to ride away if they just sort of give up. Will all the talk of Isaiah, all his faith in God, turn out to be hot air, or will the Lord Almighty show his hand and demonstrate that he's in charge of the world, that he does keep his promises, and that his purposes will be accomplished. Well, we know, don't we, because we've read it, had it read to us, that God turns up trumps. Well, let's see how it all works out and what we learn about him and how we can handle crises ourselves. So, chapter 36. There are two speeches, first of all, you can see from the outline, from the Assyrian field marshal, who is with an advance party at the gates of Jerusalem. And his first speech is the first ten verses. And basically you could sum it up by saying, look, you lot, your faith isn't going to save you at all. And he's got four themes, you can see it uh, from the outline. First of all, he tells them it's no good trying to put your trust in the Egyptians, who he describes as that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. You know, they're leaning on the Egyptians, but the Egyptians are only just going to cause them more grief. They're completely unreliable. They're just going to break and you'll suffer. They're a spent force, in other words. That's what the field commander is saying. And getting involved with them will only harm you. You know, you've uh, nothing to gain from this alliance with the Egyptians. They're the only ones who are going to profit. Think about it. You know, they're the, I'm going to invade. Judah will be the first people I fight. Uh, the Egyptians won't actually come and help you. All they'll do is, is maybe the Judeans will slow me down, but I'm coming anyway. And then he says that um, it's no good trusting in the, in, um, in the Lord, the field commander, he asserts. You know, he's thinking like a pagan. He knows, because he's going to picked up intelligence, that Hezekiah has shut down most of the shrines throughout Judah and he's centralised everything on Jerusalem. And so this pagan field commander's thinking, I don't think your deity is going to be too pleased at you shutting down all his churches all over the place. He's... Uh, you know, he's not too pleased with you, he's using me to wallop you, which is in fact true. God was, did raise up the Assyrians to discipline his own people. Then he gets sarcastic. He points out their lack of military strength. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find riders for them, he says. So, assuming that uh, he thinks he hasn't probably even got 2,000 soldiers defending Jerusalem. That's the odds of a thousand to one. Apparently in military strategy, if you're the attackers, you need to have three times as many uh, uh, soldiers as those defending. What does this guy have? Well, 
if he just uses 6,000 of his soldiers against the, uh, the 2,000 inside Jerusalem, he's still got 194,000 in reserve. Doesn't look too promising, does it? And the field commander points this out. The field commander adds that the God of Israel is on his side and not Hezekiah. He says, the Lord himself told me to march against this city and destroy it. Now maybe the field commander has had his spies in Jerusalem. Maybe they have picked up what Isaiah had been going on to Hezekiah about all the time. Hezekiah was proud. Hezekiah was disobedient. And God's patience was running out. As and Hezekiah wasn't the first. Ahaz and others were. And in fact, back in chapter 8 of Isaiah, when Ahaz was the king, Isaiah had warned him, because this people have rejected the Lord, the Lord is about to bring against them the king of Assyria with all his pomp. Like mighty floodwaters, it will overflow all its channels, run over all the banks and sweep into, the, into, the, into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. You know, it's quite a vivid picture. God raised up the Assyrians to discipline his own people. That's the picture. A whole deluge of Assyrians is now sweeping the land. Decades of warning now being carried out. Then the field commander has a second speech and he changes tactics. He has been speaking to them in Aramaic, which was the language of international diplomacy. But the ordinary people wouldn't have known that. And so, uh, so far, he's only spoken to the three sort of top brass guys. But the field commander decides to try and undermine them, so he starts speaking in Hebrew. And that's a tactic that the, uh, the top brass don't like. Because basically his message now is, look, these politicians make war, but you, the ordinary people, suffer. It's a neat bit of propaganda, isn't it? It's a good strategy. But at this particular point, the Assyrians who God has used get too arrogant and they have to be reminded that it is God who causes the rise and the fall of nations. He was quite happy with the Assyrians telling them, um, you know, don't trust in Hezekiah. You know, he's bad news. Ditch him. Make peace. That's the thing to do. But when the Assyrian starts equating his gods with the Lord Almighty, he has overstepped the mark. When he poo-poos the ability of Judah's God to save Jerusalem, he has gone too far. Verse 18, the uh, commander speaking. Has any god of any nation ever delivered um, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seravrain? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Well, is the Lord Almighty going to stomach the Assyrians' arrogance? This is a direct challenge to his authority. How will he respond? Well, we'll have to wait till the second half of chapter 37, but the first half takes up with Hezekiah's response. Let's see what it is, 36, 22. When Hezekiah's reaction is to have faith at last, his top brass report to him, and he knows when he's beat. He's been brought to his knees by this crisis. He tears his clothes he puts on sackcloth and he goes to the temple to seek the Lord. I wonder how many of us, in our experience, that it takes some kind of personal crisis, something going really wrong for us to do what we should always do, and that is seek the Lord and do the Lord's will and live humbly with him rather than arrogantly or detached. How tragic that things have to go so wrong and to come to this, that it takes this for him to do what he should have done all along. 
And he packs his top brass off to Isaiah, effectively admitting to Isaiah that Isaiah's been right all along. Now, I doubt that could have been easy for him to do. He asks Isaiah to pray, not for him, which is another sign of his genuineness of this uh, conversion, but because, he says, God has been ridiculed and he wants the remnant to survive, for God's plans to be carried out. Now, actually, Isaiah doesn't pray. You see, what God has already said will happen. Isaiah is content to believe will happen. He doesn't need to pray because he knows it's going to happen. He's been praying for it anyway. The Lord has heard all this and he will act against the Assyrians who have become too arrogant and the effect of their work has forced Isaiah, Hezekiah to repent and God is able to be reconnected with his people again and through those people he will bring about his plans. So the threat and the threateners will be removed. Now there's no mention here of the destruction of the Assyrian army. Isaiah's already predicted that back in chapter 14. Here he says of Sennacherib, I will have him struck down. In the meantime, the Assyrians will uh, hear a rumour and they will uh, set off to their home country when they hear it. The rumour we understand, was that the Egyptians were on the move. Now, while they were probably too weak to have been able to defeat Sennacherib, Sennacherib gets the jitters because they're going to hold him up even longer than the Judeans have held him up and he knows that he's got to get back to sort out the Babylonians still. So, um, they move on from Libna, where they'd been, and... um, they move off back to home, or at least they intend to go there, but uh, things happen before most of them ever manage to reach there. So, uh, we can see how in Hezekiah's first kind of reaction, compared to his second reaction, how genuine he is. So in 36, 6 and 7, Hezekiah had been trusting in the Lord, but in effect relying on the Egyptian chariots to save him. In reality, what he's come to realise is it's the other way around. The Egyptian chariots uh, that he was banking on are really a bolt-on to his trust in the Lord, rather than him trusting in the chariots with the Lord being a bolt-on. But now he knows that... uh, He is relying upon God, first and foremost, to get him out of this fix. And in 36.14, Hezekiah has been um, branded a deceiver by the field marshal of the Assyrians. And uh, he's kind of uh, claimed to be using religion as a sort of pawn for political survival. And he's really accused, effectively, of being a rogue. And... um, But this time, Hezekiah gives up trying to be manipulative and cynical uh, when he has the um, the second approach from the Assyrian. He comes to a straightforward, personal, unequivocal trust in the Lord Almighty. What we have now is a straightforward contest between the Lord Almighty on one hand and the Assyrian and their supposed gods on the other. Sennacherib had conquered many, many people groups who resisted him, but he didn't manage to conquer Jerusalem because the Lord God defended it. And Hezekiah has learned that God is no bolt-on. He's no optional extra. He's absolutely vital. And in 14 to 20, we see that Hezekiah is a man of prayer in the way in which he reacts again. And uh, as a marked contrast with his reaction the first time round. In 37, 1 and 2, he tours his clothes and he asks Isaiah to pray. Well, now, this time, there's no tearing up of his clothes. He does his own praying. What accounts for the change? What has he realised? Isn't that he knows that he's forgiven? 
Isn't it that he knows he now can have direct access to the Lord? We don't need priests or prayer counsellors or Christian heroes to pray for us. We can pray directly to the Lord ourselves. And so he keeps the Assyrian waiting. I mean, can you imagine it? He sort of says to him effectively, hang on a bit, I've got to go off and pray about things. Well, next time you're asked to make an important decision, I wonder how that line would go down. And let's look at what he prays, verses uh, 37, 14 to 20. He says, Hezekiah received a letter from the messengers and he read it. And then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, almighty God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are the God over all kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It's true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by man's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone are the Lord God, the Lord Almighty, the Omnipotent, the All-Powerful, the God of Israel with close links with his people, enthroned on the cherubim. That's a reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which was a box carried on poles, and on top of the box were these cherubim, whatever they looked like. And, um, and that was in their thought at that time, the place, God's footstool on earth. It was the place where the Lord of the universe had his presence with his people. It says that God is enthroned over the whole created world and yet he's present at the centre of his people's lives. He's involved. Isaiah appeals to him to deliver them. His motive is that God's name would be upheld amongst the people in the face of this insult that he has received, so that all people would know that the, this God, the true God, the God of Israel, is the one true God, that he is for real, that he's not some old stone and bits of wood and stuff. He's a real true God. He's praying for him to demonstrate his power in the front of this Assyrian army. Today we believe in the Lord Almighty, who rules the universe. And we can imagine that far bigger than Isaiah would ever be able to imagine. And yet we know how he came in person to live in space and time in human form. And for those who respond appropriately to him, he lives in each of them as well at this time in life. And he will deliver them, us, and whatever is thrown at us, and secure us a place in eternity with him. Well, now we're at point five. Isaiah now speaks to Hezekiah, who uh, is shown to be a man of the word of God. And Hezekiah, this is um, 37, 21. Hezekiah in 36, 5, had received the word of the Lord in response to asking Isaiah to pray. But now he receives the word of the Lord without seeking it. He prays 14 to 20 and God speaks to him 21 to 35. Because you have prayed, this is the word of the Lord. And is that not also our experience too? That we turn to God in prayer and we meditate over what we know from scripture and then our, what has been confusing becomes clarified when we've been kind of stumbling around in the darkness, we now see the light. And these verses give assurance that the settlement of the whole problem that Hezekiah is facing with this enormous army at the gates of his city or just a few miles away, this whole problem, a problem that won't be solved by trusting in the armed forces of other nations or in diplomacy or in money, if you read 2 Kings 18, 
No, this is going to be sorted out by trusting in God. He will act, he will deliver on it all. And look what we discover of God in this whole message, 21 and 22. Because you have prayed, this is the word of the Lord, he's a prayer-answering God. In 23, 25, he's in a league of his own. He brooks no rivals. You know, how many, uh, how many references can you count? The, the Assyrians talk in terms of I, I, they're all personal pronouns. I, 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 my, my, my. They are arrogant. You know, but they have been raised up by God and he can just snuff them out as simple as that, as he will do. They have got too big for their boots and God will bring them down to size. You know, we need to have a sober assessment of ourselves. All that we have, God has given to us, he can quite easily take it away. 26 to 29, he's a God who has plans. Have you not heard? Long ago I planned it. In days of old I planned it. Now I've brought it to pass. You know, prayer is a mystery. God has worked out exactly what he's going to do and he will achieve what he's planned to do. You may well ask, well, what's the point of my praying? Well, it's the way in which God gets us to engage in his plan so that we have a partnership with him in bringing them into effect. 30-32, we see he's a faithful God. The remnant will survive. 33 to 35, he's a, he's a preserving God. They'll be protected from the Assyrians. The Assyrians won't come up to Jerusalem, well, not in any force anyway. They won't attack it from a distance with arrows. They won't attack it close up with Daleks and siege ramps. God will uphold his long-standing promise to preserve a people out of whom will come a king who will eventually rule the world. And then the finale, 36 to 38, the Assyrian army is wiped out overnight. Don't know how, some kind of plague presumably, but 185,000 of them were killed. 20 years later, back in Nineveh, Sennacherib was assassinated by two of his sons. God dealt with them. So the application of this crisis to us, do we believe in a God who is a remote creator, who's kicked it all off and then just left us all alone? We often, see, often seem to act as if we do. But no, he's a God who directs history. He has plans which will succeed, which he will bring about. Secondly, a point of application, do we believe our God is really one of a number of options? We might hold another one if we lived in a different part of the world. Well, we should not. The gods of the Assyrians were no gods. They were the creations of men. They were created by men to avoid having to worship and conform to the real God. So too are the other supposed gods of today. They are the creations of human beings whose pride wants to be preserved. They do not want to humble themselves under the real God. They want to be able to supposedly earn their salvation and feel good about it. We have to be humble and allow him to give us our salvation. The real God cannot be fashioned by us. We are fashioned by him. A third point of application, do we secretly think God's rather weak, impotent? Well, we should not. The rise and the fall of nations is not just the Assyrians. He did it to the uh, Babylonians later, and then to the Greeks, then to the Romans. He is in the one who controls the rise and fall. Do we believe in a genie God, the kind of God that uh, you rub the lamp, the genie appears, the genie says, what do you want me to do? And he does it. Well, again, we should, do n we should not. That is an insult if we have that kind of mindset about God. Do we have an insurance God? You know, we've ticked the block box Christian, C of E, and we sit back and do our own thing. 
I think Hezekiah was that kind of uh, religious person. The insurance, you know, God is in the background. I will get on and do what I want. But uh, he does provide some kind of long-term insurance. But in this crisis that he had, he changed his view of God. And that's so what that, that often happens to us. It's when we go through some kind of crisis. We move from the God that we've created uh, to the real God. Not the God of our imagination, but the God revealed in Scripture. And the crisis reveals a lot about ourselves. Hezekiah wanted peace and prosperity, and so no doubt do we. But what is our understanding, and where do we look for it to come from? If by peace and prosperity we mean a cosy, quiet life and wealth, then we'll look to a career, to money, to idyllic holidays, to bigger and better houses. But we all know that people who've gone down that route are never satisfied. I know one person who has moved house five times within a few hundred yards of each house, and the houses are pretty expensive. And they've still never been satisfied with where they lived until they became a Christian. And then they stopped doing it. It wasn't anybody local. You see, those things are important. You know, careers, etc., money, etc., they're all important. You need a roof over your head and all that sort of stuff. But on their own, they don't deliver. Under God, they're very useful. If by peace and prosperity we mean peace with God, which may not mean a quiet life. Isaiah certainly didn't have a quiet life. He had to speak when he'd sooner keep quiet. And if by riches we mean forgiveness of sins and eternal life, well, that's what we're made for. And only God the Lord Almighty can deliver those. Sadly, it so often takes a crisis to realise the true God and to receive them. In that sense, perhaps we're not much different from Hezekiah, but maybe God will use our next crises to make us more like him. Amen. <laughs>